Hey, we've got your chance to win tickets to another music festival. Bourbon and Beyond happens September 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th in Louisville, Kentucky at the Highland Festival Grounds and features performances from folks like Brandy Carlisle, Train, Buddy Guy, Mavis Staples, The Killers, Duran Duran, Gaslight Anthem, Wayne Newton, The Black Keys, The Black Crows, The Avett Brothers, Old Crow Medicine Show and Spoon, Bruno Mars, Blondie. Do I need to keep going? There's a whole bunch more. Uh, keep listening for your chance to win tickets and find out more at bourbonandbeyond.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime hey, Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bed time stories in your bed with us listening for a rumor in your window there is like a, a lot of there are a lot of people who reached out over the years and said i found your podcast thinking i was going to get bedtime stories and this is very oh. ineffective as something that causes me to fall asleep it's like robert plant decided to get some stale bread <laughs> so that he could feed his chickens that were back yeah, none of that's what, happening. What do you listen to to fall asleep? Do you listen to anything? Do you just listen to silence? What do you do? Previously, there was a time where I listened to Nick Drake almost mm. exclusively. Like that was yeah, a there, thing. There was like a few uh, months ago, my son and I were in our my car and we were pulling up the top Spotify playlist, like personal playlist for past years. He mm-hmm. was like, well, that's cool because, you know, he's old enough now. It's almost 12. And so it's like, oh, I remember when I was six or seven or eight and we would listen to this song all the time. So we were listening to And there were a couple of years where the the most played song of that year was some like tallest man on earth or uh, Coheed yeah. and Cambria covering Hello by Adele. Um, and he was like, why are these songs? And I was like, well, you know, I used to like put them on before I fall asleep. And he's like, that is some old man stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe. Do you remember Rockabye Baby? Did you listen to that with the kids? So that's like the orchestral creations around. It, it's like real quiet xylophone. Like, but they do like Metallica songs. And stuff. They do like a Metallica record. There's like, you know, I mean, there's hip hop. Um, I like the Led Zeppelin one or whatever. The person who's in charge of that, who did that whole thing is David Lee Roth's sister. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boozy bop. That's not what we thought we were going to get when we started this episode, but there you go. That's a free one. You yeah. now know that. Uh, are you familiar with the term uh, leggero tenor? I looked up how to say this, and I listened to an Italian man online say leggero. Leggero. Figaro. No, this is, this is I, I, didn't, I didn't get this in music class in so, Lewisburg, Tennessee. Dude. I mean, listen, it's a very popular 19th century opera term, right? I mean, this is something that was uh, very much a part of that. A higher male voice, often described as being lighter or flexible. And what I guess uniquely sets this type of tenor apart from others is is that the unique higher range sounds like falsetto, but is not falsetto. It's actually considered part of the full range of the vocal. The Italian term, and I whew, I did not look up the tutorial on how to say this, tenore di grazia, which that's means... great. Was that good? Graceful and light. Uh, but there's also like a natural deeper voice capability to these voices too. So for reference... Just so you'll understand, because I'm just like throwing words now. But Pavarotti, Leggero. I was, tenor. I was just going to guess. Is it Pavarotti? Pavarotti. Or, or Placido Domingo? You know who else is a Leggero tenor? Yeah. Who? It's David Coverdale. <laughs> it is. And that's fucking, what we're talking it's about. It's fucking David Coverdale. That's who we're what, talking about. Now, let's not talk about the guy. Let's talk about the voice. What do you think about his voice? Um, I, I, am, I am still enraptured to this day. Did, After all this time, when did you with, notice it was different? Um, it, that 1987 record mm-hmm. um, is still it is imprinted in my brain, and I didn't understand that there was a white snake before, you know, any of this. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Um, there was a lot before. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. And and um, there was they they didn't get hit in the face with like being a Led Zeppelin clone as much as Kingdom Come did, which was kind of on the nose yeah, for yeah. them. But like. Uh, like still in the night and all those things like having that thi- like the thing with the bow like they didn't get smacked really hard and right. they probably should have probably should have you know but like man that song's really good yeah well i mean i i did in the in the course of research run across articles that were like let's talk about the biggest 
Led Zeppelin ripoff that Whitesnake did. Still the night, you yeah. know, like what, what's the story behind ripping off Led Zeppelin? Uh, so I bring this up for an obvious reason. We have a letter, and that letter comes from someone named Darius. Darius, thank you for writing the show. He says, hey, story guys, I'm a big fan. Discovered you a while back, and I never miss a, an episode. I Ooh. was wondering what you could tell us about David Coverdale firing John Sykes mm-hmm. literally right before the biggest album for both of them comes out. I've read different things about it, but I want the real story, and I trust you to give it to me. Thanks for the podcast. It's my favorite one going right now. Sincerely, Darius. Thanks, Darius. That's super nice. I hope you're an Aquarius, because that's how I would use that as a pickup line for the rest of my life, (laughs) if you are single, just in case. I'm an Aquarius. I'm sure he needed that advice. I'm sure he's like, oh, this is great. Not only do they give me rock and roll bedtime stories, they also give me dating advice. And he's probably like, yeah, and I've been married, dude. I don't need any of this. Thanks, Murdoch. So let's talk David Coverdale. I'm turning it over to you because I feel like you're going to be able to do this better than me. Yeah, so I got hit with that 87 record, and then I got to see, um, you know, I got to go back and and check out the catalog. And man, it's drastically different. So let's just start back with the history of of him. So when he was at the ripe age of 14 in England, he started with bands uh, there. There was a band called Vintage 67 that was from 1966 to 68. So that think about how old this guy is. Not old. Right. And then the government from 1968 to 1972 and the Fabuloso Brothers. And all I can see is him with like the, the whatever the ruffly shirt, <laughs> frilly. the frilly ruffly shirt. <laughs> I like that image. Yeah. So when he's in that second band, the government um, in 69, they end up playing this gig with Deep Purple. So that's where that connection had happened. So when Dave's flipping through the Melody Maker a few years later and sees an announcement that Deep Purple is auditioning singers to replace Ian Gillen, he figures, okay, um, he sends a tape and they let him audition him. And he's 22 and he ends up as the front man for Deep Fucking Purple. Did everyone know that? So I was going to ask you, because I assume you encountered, I mean, you've already said you encountered David in front of Whitesnake. And so I'm just curious about your relationship with Deep Purple in general. Oh, yeah. Um, Were you ever into them? Not really heavy, but God bless my mom who let me buy every piece Mm -hmm. of music that I ever wanted. And there was times where I would just, there were things that were missing. And Deep Purple was like a crack. It was a missing thing. So I didn't have any Deep Purple. So... I got Machine Head because that's yeah. that's the record I got. But for me, Highway Star is the best Deep Purple song, and so. But I I listened to other Deep Purple like records and th- I tried it like I traded them because I didn't like them or whatever. And so that's the one I kept. But that's it. But it wasn't until like later that I was like, Oh, Coverdale was a singer in in, uh, in this band. Well, his time with them is not what I think of when I think of Deep Purple. Obviously, you think of Smoke on the Water. Um, but he's actually pretty successful with them, especially at first. Right, right. So, um, like I, I had to go back and discover him after this, after I saw White Snake the the first time. So he did three records with them, and two of them went gold. So yeah. I think he has. I'm going to go ahead and say I think David Coverdale has that star appeal. <laughs> anyway, so he gets to tour the U.S. for the first time, and he's Cause, with because he's British. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. No, well, which, and I forget this, right? Because, we, and we've talked about this with other artists, this becomes a big part of this story. David Coverdale, like a lot of British musicians at the time, gets very obsessed with breaking in America. Yeah. And then they play the California Jam. So if you haven't seen the California Jam, just like go and, and, and YouTube California Jam Black Sabbath. Dude. I, you- so I feel like this festival's been slightly lost to history. It, I, yeah. I mean, most paid attendees at the time uh, for a festival ever more than Woodstock because there were more people at Woodstock, but (laughs) most of them didn't pay. Uh, It was very financially successful. It was sort of the end of the independent promoters doing these big shows, right? And the corporate entities come in and things get more structured and all that sort of stuff. But here's the factoid that I forgot about it. It also featured the largest sound system Mm -hmm. ever assembled up to that point, which is totally, 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 totally weird i wanted to mention the black sabbath youtube video because like you can see like that looks about like seven thousand dollars worth of cocaine that's going on for the, the two hours and they're like <laughs> they're just the the whole thing anyway so we've talked about this on the show before deep purple was um 
they were known as the loudest band in the world in the Guinness Book of World Records at one point. So have you ever heard how they did this at the nah. California Jam? Nah, so so no. there, there was this company. They hired this company named uh, Tycho Bray's Sound. And they are tasked this, you know, as vendors that are brought in to figure out how to meet Deep Purple's demands to make 200,000 attendees go deaf, right? I, keep, I, I keep think up that's, our rep. that's a fair thing. So <laughs> this is what they do. They Violence. decide if they're, if they're going to keep this Deep Purple as the loudest band of all time or whatever reputation, they're going to take all of the sound systems on the property and just hook them together, which I don't, I don't even know how you do that, but they get Deep Purple's Black Oak Arkansas's Black Sabbath Earth, Wind, and Fire was there oh, in yeah. Rare Earth. Oh, all yeah. of them get all their sound systems and put them together. And here's the thing that, you know, I didn't know about um, Coverdale and Deep Purple, you know, at, at all until I learned about them being at the California Jam is that they showed up with a plane and it had their name on the side, which was like some shit that people didn't do. Yeah, this was, this was like one of the first times that happened. I, I'm curious if you feel this way, but for as big as they clearly were when you hear stories like this, I feel like Deep Purple has had a notable lack of staying power in pop cultural history. Sure. Like, we, you know, we got to have some fun on an old episode examining Smoke on the Water, and that's a song that lives inside any American who's ever taken a damn guitar lesson. But with the exception of that song, hmm. you don't just hear Deep Purple when you're out and about like you do with no. Zep or even Sabbath. Yeah. Like, you know, you just walk outside and you're, you're liable to hear a lot of their contemporaries and some of the people that were on that bill with them. But I don't feel like you get that with Deep Purple, and I don't really know why. Well, like, I mean, this will, of course, this states me, but like go into a Waffle House or any place that has a jukebox <laughs> If there is a Deep Purple song on there, it's just Smoke on the Water. Yeah, it's, yeah there, there it. is nothing else. And that band is Richie Blackmore. And that, right, is, right, that right. is it. And so, you know, when you heard about them, the Rock and Roll like Hall of Fame or whatever, like it kind of revolved around Richie Blackmore. Like, who really is the singer? Like, so the revolving cast of people in it is like so much that there is like one member really towards the end. Well, that, you know, and, and that echoes what we're going to find with Coverdale, with, right? With, with the snake. Uh, but you mentioned Richie Blackmore. By the time they get to this third Coverdale record in, in the deep purple, uh, ten, his tenure in deep purple, Richie Blackmore's gone. And so their style starts to shift. Half of them are doing a lot of drugs, probably a- along with the black Sabbath guys at that big concert. Yeah. And then this is the best. I mean, this happens to people, right? So Coverdale tries to quit after a really bad show, and he's told he can't because the band broke up. <laughs> we did it first. <laughs> it's like the breakup that didn't work. It, it turns out, yeah, that Deep Purple and my sixth grade girlfriend had the same strategy when it came to confrontation. That's, pretty, that's pretty fucking funny, Brian. <laughs> um, so this is how... That, that's true. That yeah. hurts. That's true. <laughs> so this is how we get to solo David... Coverdale and and what we find here is that everything after this is kind of like his project like everything that he does but we have different names we have all kinds of things and, and there's so many different people that are involved here so the first album is called White Snake it, it's always about his dick right is this the White Snake thing why what? he calls anything White Snake uh, <laughs> um, don't you remember those videos with Tony Katane man <laughs> It depends on when you ask him. He's been quoted as saying, quote, if I'd been from Africa, the band would be called Black Snake. Which is a... Be- what? What? I, if I was David Coverdale, I'd be like, can I strike that from the record? Did I ever said that? Clearly not. Um, but when forced to be serious, he said it originated with the album and the song of the same name of the album, which is generally thought to be inspired by watching Deep Purple break up. And come on, man, the first time I saw White Snake, this is what I remember. Hello, Nashville. We want to slide it in. And I turned to my sister. I was like, what does that mean? Like, that was his dick. Well, so this first record that he does, this solo record called White Snake, it doesn't do very well, but he holds on to that name and he ends up forming a band to tour that record. And then they just sort of eventually take the name. Yeah. There's a brief aside here. He makes that first record with a guy who eventually becomes part of the official band. And his name is Mickey Moody. Oh, yeah. So he met him from his hometown music scene in Middleborough in England. And that's worth pointing out because that scene birthed a whole bunch of people. Dude, the... Listen, 
Mickey had already been in a cover band with Paul Rogers, who will go on to be in Free and Bad Company, with Bruce Thomas, who will be in Elvis Costello and the Attractions. He'd been on Island Records. He'd done time with several other acts, and eventually he's going to perform alongside a real who's who of rock royalty. Clapton, Paul Weller, a whole bunch of people. And so the first iteration of Whitesnake is formed with Moody recording, excuse me, recruiting Bernie um, Martson from UFO and Martson recruits Neil Murray, who some of you nerdy rock and roll types might know. And then they get Dave Duck Dowie on drums and Brian Johnson on keys. And that is that lineup. That's David Coverdale's White Snake. That's what they call themselves at first because they want to keep David Coverdale's name up front. It's like Stephen Curry's rat. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, George Lynch's docking. First gig is March of 78. And I think that it's important to explain what Whitesnake sounded like at the beginning because we already know we're going to talk about John Sykes, right? We're not going to get to him for a few more minutes. But if if your knowledge of Whitesnake starts with 87, like you said, then you know, you're thinking of Tiny Contain on a car. And putting a member of Thin Lizzy in that band might seem incongruent. But if you go listen to Snakebite, the first proper record, I mean, this has more in common with ZZ Top and 38 Special than with Poison and Cinderella. It, it definitely seems adjacent to what Thin Lizzy had been doing. And it, it's like hard rock boogie guitar music, right? They, they cite Allman Brothers and Skinner as influences in the press at the time. And at the time, it's really hard to to get away from the almonds at that time. Like that's mm, a real big mm-hmm. thing. But also the one thing you find here is that Coverdale is a chameleon. He's really trying to figure out like what works and yeah. what's going to make him a success. Right. Here's a quote from uh, music writer, Stig Meyer from 97. The original concept of white snake had more in common with rhythm and blues than heavy metal. The band was founded on a heritage of muddy waters, Bobby Bland, John Lee hooker, Robert Johnson, the English blues from the 60s, et cetera. And well, yeah, there's a, a Mickey Moody quote that I ran across where he said, quote, the original Whitesnake had nothing to do with heavy metal anyway. We were a rock and roll band. The early Whitesnake songs were influenced by the Stones, Jeff Beck, Led Zeppelin, and my slide playing came a little bit from Little Feet. So we should talk about Moody's slide playing. So this is a a big part of the... Yeah. First iteration of White Snake sound, and there's even I read a quote where it was like when Moody left, someone was like, the other guys in the band were like, "What's what's White Snake without you?" Because you defined the guitar sound. Because not very many bands at the time had a guitar player who was playing slide all the time. Uh, but that aside, I, I did want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the "Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City" cover? It really, it's true, man. I hate to be like this guy, but like nothing whips my whistle until like. <laughs> 87. A black cat of molds when it's all with a Give me the hairspray. Yeah. Uh, So someone's preferred version of that song, I feel like, is a real indicator of age. And and the distance between me and you makes my preferred version of that song, the Jay-Z Unplugged version from 2001, which Jaguar Wright sings the hook on and burns the studio down doing it. If you have not heard that song recently, it is absolutely unbelievable. But... You know, again, it it illustrates Coverdale's range, that song does, Mm. but why mess with Bobby Bland? You say Jay-Z, I say tomato. That's really my thing. (laughs) So the thing to remember about Whitesnake is that they're eras. Yeah, I know, right. We're sort of alluding to this already. That's good. Point that out. So he... If you cut the timeline into pieces, cut the timeline into pieces. <laughs> the first piece runs from seventy-eight to eighty-two, so it's like the kind of bluesy thing. I so was not prepared for you to do that. Sorry. So trouble almost beer on my microphone. Trouble is seventy-eight. Love Hunter is seventy-nine. Ready and Willing is nineteen eighty, and Come and Get It is eighty-one. And where things get a little weird. And they start to piece together this band that you probably know is Saints and Sinners, which comes out in 82. And there are future songs, there's songs on here that become future White Snake songs. Right, right, that right. On, this, on that record in Saints and Sinners, they're bluesy and before they get all glammed out. Yep. Right? Yep. So after Come and Get It, they do this big tour, and that's when what you're talking about, the infighting all starts. They're, they're having money issues. They have money issues for a very long time. Up until 87, they're broke as fuck. Coverdale's like just leveraging his whole life for this band. And he's starting to blame it on this old Deep Purple manager that they keep around. And 
the other guys are starting to think that Coverdale's ego is out of control because y- you pointed this out, right? Like this is sort of always about Coverdale. Yeah, it's a weird balance because he has whether their employees are in the band like this was a solo project. I mean, it literally was. Right. And it's like almost like they forget that. This is from a 1997 Mickey Moody interview, which is in the show notes, and it's crazy. It's been like archived on the back end of some website, but Mickey Moody goes to town in this, and it's now almost like close to 30 years old, this interview is, but man, it still hurts when you read it. Uh, by 81, people were becoming tired. We had too many late nights, too much partying. We weren't making nowhere near the kind of money we should have been making. White Snake always seemed to be in debt. And I thought, what is this? We're playing in some big places and we're still being told we're in debt. Where's all the money going? Everybody was getting tired, pissed off, and losing their sense of identity. It was over by then. We couldn't get any further. Now, there are different versions of what happened here, depending on who you ask. One version states that everybody quit the man. Let's quit. One version states that Coverdale said he wanted to put the band on hold. Let's put it on hold. And if you aren't talking to Coverdale, the story from the other band members is that they were called to a meeting and Coverdale told them that they were all, quote, no longer part of Whitesnake. I wish, just for a moment, that I could have an ego the size of your home where we're at right now (laughs) so that I could say shit like that. You are no longer... You're no longer a part of David Coverdale's Whitesnake. It's such a weird thing. So there are more than just band stressors getting to Coverdale at this point. His marriage is falling apart. This dude, man, lover boy for Pete's sake. He's got a four-year-old daughter who gets sick, and then there's no diagnosis. It's one of those situations. This is crazy. So I read that at first, doctors are telling them that they thought it was this rare disease from Japan, and they were like, you know how they ask you that at the doctor? Like, have you traveled overseas? Have you traveled overseas in the last month? And I guess at one point, because they're just so clueless, they have asked him about his travels, and you know, here's a guy who's been all over the world, and they're like, oh, we think you brought this really super rare disease from Japan back, and it has now been passed to your daughter. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, let's just, I mean, Coverdale doesn't look good through most of this episode, spoiler alert, but I will say, this is devastating. The idea of thinking that you would be responsible for your kid being sick directly. Yeah, um, and let's just take a sidebar out of a sidebar of whatever, like, we can't, if we compare Coverdale to Robert Plant, like, we're not going to throw any shade at Robert Plant being a bad person, but like him losing a child was like a thing that made him want to quit the band, not record, not tour, not do anything. Right, right, So right, right. the parallels are kind of interesting, um, but Robert Plant was first, right? So it turns out that his daughter has bacterial meningitis. And by the way, if you guys don't know what that is, it's not great. It's the swelling of the membranes around the spinal cord in the brain. So that's so it's a terrible about diagnosis. about it is painful, so yeah. I can't imagine having it. So what really happened to close out this first period of Whitesnake? Uh, Jeff Barton, who was the founder of Kerrang, he did this piece for Louder in 2018 that's in the show notes. It's another half to read. There's some really good stuff in the show notes. He, <laughs> this is what he does. He goes to the first era of Whitesnake, and he calls everybody. And he gets them all on the record. And then he calls them all back and tells them what everybody else said. Which is like, not great journalism, but really entertaining to read. Uh, During the course of this chaos, Neil Murray will drop this gem. And this is like, if you just want to take notes and write this down, this is what I would encourage you to put on the post-it and stick on the wall next to you. Quote, The difficulty is that David will say something to the press And even though it's not quite what actually happened, he'll say it so many times that he comes to believe it himself, and therefore everyone else does too. Sounds like other people. This is an interesting quote, because it does point something out that I noticed, which is that some lighter pieces about David, if you just read rockcelebrities.net or whatever, and they have a a story about David Coverdale almost quit Whitesnake because of his daughter, They basically say that the first phase ends because he takes time to care for his sick daughter. If you really dig into this story and look at the timeline, that seems a little disingenuous. Yeah, so here let's point out the... The Mickey Moody David Coverdale relationship because uh, this yeah, is because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's more here. So they knew each other from their local they music go way scene, back. right? Right. And during the chaos around the making of Saints and Sinners, which is kind of the end of this first big era of White Snake, Moody actually quits, and then Coverdale begs him to come back to finish the record because it's not done. So when the sessions start for what becomes slide it in. <laughs> 
which is say it like that. which is the awesome beginning <laughs> slide of, it in the best beginning of era two for me um Moody's in the band, but most of the other members have changed at this point. And Moody gets really vocal about this, like we already pointed out by this article and stuff, but he'll talk all about this in subsequent years. And first off, he claims when he comes back that he's a salaried session musician. He's not a band member. And he says blood was getting pretty bad between him and David. This is a quote. Me and David weren't friends and co-writers anymore. David never said anything to me. He just didn't socialize with me anymore. David was a guy who five, six years earlier had been my best friend. And the the dissolving of this relationship is important for the sake of the story today for Darius's letter. Because it gets us to the other star of the story, if we were sticking to it, and that gets us to the guy who had the best guitar tone of anything in 1987 on anything that was re- released. It is John Sykes. So I removed this from the notes, but I'm going to reinsert it now, which is, depending on what you read about stressors on the 87 session, which is what we're headed towards, yeah. and things that make the band sort of fall apart in that. We know that because of Darius's letter. He set us up for that. W- one of the things is that Sykes can't get his guitar tone right. And he spends a very long time bringing in people to try to get the guitar tone he hears in his head. Now, what I hear you say is he eventually achieved it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's that- like you're talking about... It's like you're talking about one of your children, right? Yeah. I, I had some pals, and I'm not going to out them or anything for this conversation, but they, they had a record deal in the 90s, and they had to deal with Electra, and they got a great producer. And I heard that that drum, like getting the drum sound, that took three months. So just like think about your art that you're doing that, you know, you have a song that just has a boom, boom, ching, ching, or like a beat like that, you're doing stuff like that for months like that has to be a punch in the gut and how you're actually creating things to have to just figure out the sound so we talked about thin lizzy not that long ago on this show but i don't think john sykes name came up because he was i don't say barely in the band but he comes to the band very late in their existence he spends the first part of his career in this other band called tigers of pantang like British heavy metal yep. ar- around the same time as like Quiet Riot and such. Did you ever listen to them? Yes, thanks Metallica. Only because of the new wave of British heavy metal. Like right, right, I right, started right. reading that, and Lars's like list of what all those bands were, and so like I went and listened to all those bands. Not my favorite. Like I didn't like them and Diamond Head, but like I kind of liked all the rest of them. Yeah, but, but yeah. So Sykes joins Thin Lizzy at the end, and he's on their farewell tour, and and that's really it. But. During this brief time, they play a show in Germany, like a festival, I think, with Whitesnake. And it's backstage at this festival that there is a pivotal moment that will get Mickey Moody out of the band for a second time and will make room for John Sykes to join the snake. Urban NBR, this September in Louisville, Kentucky, with Bruno Mars. The Killers. Black Keys. Brandy Carlisle. Plus Duran Duran, Billy Strings, Black Crows, The Avid Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Bourbon and Beyond, September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com. And one thing worth pointing out here is that Whitesnake hasn't broken wide in the States, right, at all. Which becomes an obsession for Coverdale. Right. And so Saints and Sinners got them on Geffen. So remember, like when when the White Snake White Snake record comes out in '87, they're label mates with Guns N' Roses, right? Wild. So Geffen's A and R guy at the time was uh, John Collender. Um, hope I'm saying that perfect. Collodner, Collodner, maybe Collodner. Yeah, that's right. Um, who becomes a legend in his own right, and his determination around breaking the band is putting extra pressure, and extra piss and vinegar into Dave. So he becomes obsessed with breaking into America and. We now go in further into period two of Whitesnake. Well, and he moves to America during this period. That's how obsessed he is. We've seen this on recent episodes with other artists where people say, the one thing I haven't done, I might be very successful here, but America is the crown jewel and I want to be big there. We should probably do a Kaladner episode at some point, but man, that dude was in a lot of rooms. And he was so influential in his own unique way 
with so many bands that it became this joke. It was a joke that was started by Forner because he worked with Forner where they would credit him in the liner notes. And you know how like if we were making liner notes for this show, we'd put like Mark Murdoch microphone two or whatever. Like, you know, right. this is what you did on the, on the album. Uh, they would just put John Kalodner and then colon John Kalodner. Like he would, he was so singular. He would just be himself. That's what he did. He wasn't a producer, an engineer. He was just John Kalodner. Yeah, it's like a person that's sort of bigger than everything. And he, but he got shit done. And and what he wanted to do is he wanted to break White Snake in the United States. Yeah, he may be the one person as obsessed with this as Coverdale. Right. And sometimes you need a tag team partner. It's difficult to do this stuff by yourself. So he puts Geffen representatives on the side on this side of the stage taking notes on the band's performance. Can you imagine this? Like, that was a real thing that would happen. He would send guys from the label to stand and take fucking notes while they were performing. It's like micromanaged terribleness. This is a quote from Mickey Moody. Quote, I wasn't socializing and I wasn't happy on stage. There were literally people coming over from Geffen, standing on the side of the stage, taking notes and writing things, and I thought, I don't like the look of this. Then one night we're in Germany, and we did this mini festival with Thin Lizzy, John Sykes was on guitar, and back at the hotel, we were all sitting around, and David was really talking to John Sykes a lot. And I was sitting there quietly, not doing anything, and David just turned around to me, pointed his fingers, and said, don't you ever turn your back on the audience again. And I went, what? And he said, that's really unprofessional. And he did this in front of John Sykes to make me look small, and I thought to myself, fine, that's it. I nearly said to him, Get him in the band, because even I knew by then he wanted somebody like John Sykes, because John Sykes was good-looking, and he was a good guitar player, and I decided to leave after finishing the end of the tour. The last gig was in Brussels in Belgium in October 83, and after the gig, I said to the tour manager, I want to have a meeting in my room with the whole band. I have something to say. Everybody arrives, and I said, where's David? And the tour manager came and said, well, David's entertaining people in his suite, and he won't come down. So... Coverdale does indeed get John Sykes into White Snake. He is ruthless during this period. When he gets obsessed with this American breakthrough, he just gets mean. Do you know the story about Mel Gailey? That's the guy from Trapeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he gets him in the band during this time period. We've breezed over that, but he's in for Slide It In. You talk too much. (laughs) Never said what's on your mind. It's written on your face. Such a great song, dude. One night in Germany, he is fucking around after the show with John Sykes. They had this thing where they would be out behind the venue or whatever, like by the bus, and they would just run through the parking lot over the top of cars. Like they were damn Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible or some shit. And and there's this freak accident. It's hard to feel sympathetic or as sympathetic as we should because this is really messed up what happens. But, I mean, that is an asinine thing to do. But they're running and they fall. Like they're both doing it. It's like me and you doing it. And then I fall on top of you and you land on your arm. Not a good thing to do to a guitar player. Yeah. It makes me think about uh, uh, people here. We live in Louisville, Kentucky, at the uh, at Churchill Downs or Kentucky Derby, where they're they're running over the porta potties. Yeah, at the Derby, it's because, exactly that because it never ends with like a trophy. There's never a participation <laughs> trophy for you running over shit boxes like at the thing. But like, I mean, I, I mean, your your instrument. Is, is your arms. Like, why would you... And, and it's so... Yeah, why would you put that at risk? But then, not only that, so he has to go to the hospital, and he contracts a virus in the hospital that will eat the nerves in his right hand, from the hand up to, like, the base of his skull, and he can no longer play guitar at all. That's so terrible. And basically for him to ever play guitar again, he gets this metal contraption made that he wears that gets his arm to cooperate. This is a quote. Quote, I've still got it. I call it the claw. The claw. I have to. (laughs) The claw. The claw. (laughs) Shouts liar, liar. Uh, One of the great ones. (laughs) I I still have to wear it. The nerves that control the muscles don't work, so it acts like a mechanical muscle. So the interviewer, when he's asking him about this, asks him, he says, We've heard this rumor that Coverdale basically wouldn't let you play in the band because he said you looked insane with that contraption on your hand. And Gailey responds and says, quote, he certainly said, I don't want to see you in the band with that on your hand. 
but I have no regrets. You have to be philosophical. The Kalodner period was taking over and Whitesnake were turning into an MTV band. And obviously I smashed my arm, but I'm not going to say anything bad about him because it's David and it's something we went through. So he's being very diplomatic, unlike his other bandmates from that period. And Kalodner gets credit here, but the songs he uses to help these guys break on MTV are, are not new yeah, songs. Yeah, you mentioned this, right? Yeah, and so um, Here I Go Again was on Saints and Sinners, and it's slower. And s- instead of saying like a drifter, it says like a hobo. And like, mm. I, and it like, it doesn't, it doesn't I, work. I forgot about that. Yeah. So as well, I think. Now let's get to the creation of what Darius, who wrote today's letter, called quote, the biggest album for them both. The one you've talked about since we turned on the microphones, the 1987 self-titled Whitesnake album. Oh, 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 oh! I think, do do people know this is their seventh album? No, no. I don't, I don't like, I didn't know it was their seventh album. I was just, I, I remember going to see them and I was like, oh, this is really cool. That new band. Yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, um, mom let me go to the store and I was like, oh, there's a lot of, and like slide it in. Like, I didn't know that was them. And I realized at that point I was listening to AOR radio and they were playing that song that I didn't know was White Snake that went, keep on pushing, babe, like I never done before. Like they played slow and easy, which is like six and a half minutes like it's just fucking long and i remember hearing that no take me down slow and easy and i didn't know what and that was white snake and i've been listening to white snake for a while and just didn't didn't know it but i bet a lot of people thought that that was white snake's first record and probably still do so after the slide it into her ends in january of 85 coverdale flies to la goes to the geffen offices and says he's gonna fire the whole band. Does this sound familiar? Is there a fucking pattern? I know we've probably said this on the show before, but my dad used to always say to me, Brian, if everyone has a problem with Bob, Bob might be the problem. <laughs> well, especially if it's David Coverdale's white snake, right? Uh, if everyone has a problem with David, David might be the problem. Yeah. They tell them um, if he wants to break in America, this Coverdale-Sykes combo visual was too good to pass up. Oh, because MTV's here. Right. And, and, and they're like, this is a sexy combo. And, and they know Coverdale's hot, but this is, I mean, and Coverdale's aware of this because this is why he told Gailey to get the fuck out. Yeah, and Sykes, good looking. He ends up keeping Murray too, um, but Cozy Powell gets booted and rumors being that that's financial um, and Cozy you know, didn't like the size of his paycheck, so apparently. Up to this point, Sykes has been an onstage component of Whitesnake, but not a studio component, right? So now these dudes have to write a record together. So... They do what all straight rock dudes in the 80s did when they needed to write arena anthems full of double entendres. They went to the south of France. Or if in the 70s when you're trying not to pay your taxes. <laughs> right? So Sykes, this is a big freaking deal, man. Sykes has nine co-writes on this record that he didn't tour on. There's a reason Darius wrote us about this. Yeah, right, right. Because there is, if you are, if you are paying attention to the chemistry, yeah. This is an explosion. This is a Coverdale Sykes like yeah. writing combo. They get new material ready, and now they need a drummer. And this is really interesting. And I love talking about uh, White Snake's drummer, man. It's it's a great story. The story goes they audition sixty people. Sixty fucking. Here's some names of the folks who seem to have been considered at some point. Some of these are going to be familiar, especially if you're a fan of the show. Tommy Aldridge, who ends up being the drummer of White Snake, and until last year, when Coverdale got COVID, was still the drummer in White Snake. And dude, look up how old Tommy Aldridge <laughs> is and see him hitting the drums. He doesn't have like another dude sitting next to him like Ringo. He still hits the drums like he's you. He's a buff fucking 70 year old dude slamming the drums it's amazing uh carmine apiece yeah was supposedly in talks for this he's a favorite on this show if you have not heard our episode drummers versus the rest of the band highly recommended he, he has a starring role in that episode he says he was busy with his other band uh, but he will end up going on to be in a band with john sykes yeah called blue murder called blue murder and then they end up landing on ainsley dunbar and this is another guy we could do a whole episode on. Dude, because we need to do an Ainsley episode. And I mean, I don't know uh, how we do it, but I, Carmen Apiece, like all these, like they played with everyone too. But Dunbar, you know, it's said that he and Mitch Mitchell did a coin toss, decide who got the the spot in Hendrix, and he lost. No fucking way. 
Isn't that a is fact? That, is that real? I don't know if that's real. I mean, it it belongs on this show. <laughs> I have no, I have no fucking idea. So now they have to make this record. It it's end of eighty five and eighty six. They're tracking with Mike Stone in Vancouver. It it comes time for Coverdale to sing, and here so so they they get the Sykes guitar tone figured out. That's the yeah. first thing, and now it's like David, you've got to do your vocals. And this is Coverdale telling the story. I developed an appalling sinus infection. Those are words that I do not like to hear in my house when someone says, I have an appalling sinus infection. I developed an appalling sinus infection. (laughs) I'm trying to hear it in his voice, Brian, which not only prevented me from singing in tune, but without any range at all. I I started to sound very nasal, like I had a cold, but I didn't. Well, you sort of did. I didn't have the symptoms of a cold, but I sounded like I did. The first song I went in for was This Is This Love, and I thought, I won't overdo it. Let's see. And I sang the song from beginning to end, and I was out of tune, and I couldn't tell. And at the end of it, I was dripping with sweat. I was exhausted, and that's not really an exhausting song to perform. And he finally gets a doctor, doctor, give me the news to take a look, and he says... Dude, you have the worst sinus infection I've ever seen, David Coverdale. Um, which, okay. So they give him antibiotics and he tries to get, you know, get better. And then, which to me sounds like at this point, he's hanging out with uh, John Belushi. His septum collapses. Well, here's the thing I did a little research on this to be like, is there like cocaine to blame for this? It's hard to think there isn't. And also, your sinus infection. And the severity of that sinus infection could be caused by that. But I actually could not find anything that would commit to this idea that this was all caused by a coke habit. Did you possibly think in the context of the 1980s? I just threw that <laughs> you to see. Did that not occur to you? You're like, ah, oh, that's... Uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, he in interviews acts like I just had the sinus infection and it caused my septum to collapse. And I did look. And if you read why do septums collapse, I mean, the main thing is like, well, you get a really bad sinus infection. Now, is the sinus infection caused by a coke habit? I don't know. Maybe it's caused by elderflower. So, I don't know. Here's the thing. <laughs> nice, elderflower. Here's the thing. So, they have to do surgery. And they tell him, David Coverdale, there is about a 50-50 chance you'll never sing after this. Yeah. Which is a pretty wild thing. So Coverdale has to now go to Kalodner at Geffen, and and he says he tells Kalodner to pull the plug on the project. And Darius and everyone else listening, this is where the drama for your mama starts This is where totally different versions of this fucking story start things we know for sure okay let's just let's just run down facts that everyone seems to agree on coverdale has a surgery there is a six-month recovery david also says he was very in debt at the time remember i said that he's constantly in debt up until 87 sykes is getting frustrated with this pause which makes sense and then coverdale starts getting invoices for studio time and other things and he starts, like, imagine this. Let's just play for a moment defense attorney for David Coverdale. Because, you know, he's not going to get a lot of defense on this episode. Your your septum has collapsed. You are on a six-month break. You are laid up. And all of a sudden, you're getting pinged with, look at this stuff you're supposed to pay. You know, you didn't run up the charges. You think there's a coup at hand. Right. You, you, you think somebody's coming for your job. And so... He construes all of this, whether it's true or not, as being signs that Mike Stone, the producer, and John Sykes are conspiring against him. Yeah. Sidebar, did you know that Mike Stone worked, twisted some knobs, worked on Beatles for Sale, and he worked with Roy Thomas Baker? Really? Bohemian Rhapsody. What? Yeah. That's a real, Shouts to Mike Stone. That's that's the real thing. So, so anyway, at this point, Mike Stone is suggesting, apparently to Geffen that they find a new singer. And well, it, it, some rumors say that it was Sykes that was saying that. Yeah, so depending on where you read the story, yeah. Coverdale, and Coverdale just sort of blames them both, right? And now, I've seen it inferred that Sykes left on his own, but that is not the story that Sykes gives. Sykes has been... There's a particular interview in 2017 that Sykes gives to this British rock band called Rock Candy. And he goes off it's like no one had ever asked him before he just loses his shit 2017 
So just do the math, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. That is a long time. Yeah. 87 to 17. And he will... Uh, say that David, quote, used every excuse possible to explain why he didn't want to record his vocals uh, for the record. Quote, he blamed the weather. He wasn't happy with the studio. He even went so far as to say the microphones weren't good enough. I honestly think David suffered from nerves. Now, again, if we were going to play defense attorney for David Coverdale, this is the voice I would use. I would also say that the guy's freaked out. Objection, Your Honor. I just wanted to do it. Thank you. I just have never got to say that really (laughs) like that with such authority. When I was talking about White Snake, everything was great right there. So maybe he's he's freaked out. Maybe it's some performance anxiety, right? He's like, listen, the whole we're almost have the cake, and we're going to be able to eat it too, and I might screw it up right at the finish line. So I can understand that, but. John Sykes continues, quote, David said nothing to any of us about having decided to kick us out of the band. So according to John Sykes, he calls John Kalodner because he's starting to like not get good communication. And Kalodner has to tell him that he's out of the band. Quote, I was furious and not about to accept this. So I went to the studio where David was recording his vocals, prepared to confront him. Honest to God, he's saying this in 2017. Honest to God, David ran away from me, got in his car, Ferrari, and hid. I have no idea if that's true, but it's unbelievable. It's really funny to think, here I go again, and he gets in the car. Definitely not his Ferrari in those videos at that point, for sure. Well, you know, and then it's it, funny. at one point, Coverdale has said at some point, I guess, that 95% of the guitar on White Snake is him. <laughs> <laughs> and Sykes in this interview is like, David Coverdale can't play the fucking guitar. No. Like, no. that is bullshit. No. He's like really good at taking the microphone and using it like it's sort of like a cod piece like thing upside down. Like he is the master of so that, good at that. that thing. Now, a G chord, not as good. No, he doesn't play guitar. Uh, that's unbelievable, dude. It's an unbelievable story. And then there's these rumors uh, that, like in 17, when this interview comes out, there had been rumors that they were talking again. The Coverdale and Sykes were talking again. And, and John Sykes loses his mind because they ask him. And he says, I know David's been saying recently that he and I have been talking about working together on a project outside of Whitesnake, and that is completely false. <laughs> I have no interest in ever talking to that guy again. And as recently as May-ish of this year. Still touring. Metal Edge asked Coverdale again about a possible Sykes reunion, and he said he didn't think it could happen. He references their relationship and says, quote, with John, things just got exploded. I think rock bottom would have been when he tried to fire me from my own band. As you can imagine, that didn't go very well. No. And so think about it. These guys tell stories. They're different stories, but they're kind of the same story. I just keep going back to the Neil Murray quote that we mentioned near the top of the episode. I'll read it again. Quote, the difficulty is that David will say something to the press, and even though it's not quite what actually happened, he'll say it so many times that he comes to believe it himself. Right. So the crazy thing is that Coverdale comes out on top. They're huge in MTV. He makes the band, makes it work. They achieve this dominating America vision he's been desperate for. And then I see this lineup open up from Motley <laughs> Crue on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. Read that lineup. That lineup's impressive. This, Eight, is, the, this is who he puts together after he kicks Sykes and everybody else out. Yeah. Eventually, Steve Vai's in this band, but not in this lineup that I see. But like I remember looking on the stage. So there's Tommy Aldridge is playing drums, who played drums. So with he gets him back after they couldn't make it, the yeah. negotiation work the first time. They and he played him. drums with Ozzy. Rudy Sarzo, who was on our first podcast, who was on Quiet Riot still and call Ozzy. still a friend of the show. Let's do that. Um, Adrian Vandenberg, who's now in Def Leppard, right? Um, or is that Vivian Campbell? Uh, he's, I think he's in Def Leppard. He was in Dio. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the band that they had. So they started going really heavy with the Aquanet, with the hair metal. Uh-huh. And so those guys became the faces associated with the music. When Coverdale didn't have Tawny Katane in the videos, it was all like those, like, 
hot guys with the big hair. And Sykes will go on to do his own stuff, but nothing puts his name and face on MTV at all. Yeah, it's a wild ride. And it's, it, it is interesting because, I mean, you said it, Coverdale sort of wins. He's the asshole, but he wins. He's, he, it, he, follow him on Twitter. He's, he, just, he just posts memes. He's, he's, I mean, he's, he's kind of about 10 years behind with all that because he's a 70-year-old dude, but he is, he's, he's on Twitter posting memes, man. He's winning. And, and he, yeah, I, this is a, a case of a guy who just wanted to achieve and saw what he wanted to achieve and went and got it. And it's interesting because we run across this a lot on the show, but like there is this conversation around artistic integrity or, or a, an individual's perception of artistic integrity. Maybe your perception is different than mine and anyone listening, their perception might be different than both of ours. But there comes this question of, is this, is this me making some great statement to the world or is this me making a bunch of money and doing this as a business? Yeah. And I don't think Coverdale ever had any qualms about what he was doing. I mean, he was singing songs about dicks. I mean, that's what, that's what he was singing. About. I mean, it is keep on pushing baby. Like I've never done. Take me down slow and easy. Make love to me slow and easy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hypersexual from the beginning. The All faces deeper, of White Snake. The deeper the love. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> we said there were more than these phases, right? So then there are later phases. I saw a stat at one point when preparing that said in the course of their history, there have been nine lineups mm. or something like that. Wow. So, and that may that may be an old stat. So, like, you know, it's it's basically David Coverdale, and it's whoever he can pull in. Right. But we, because he always had rock and roll pedigree yeah. from his association with Richie Blackmore and the loudest band in the world, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Who was the only guy always in Deep Purple. See, I mean, this is the... You you make, you make a great point. I learned it from watching you. It, it's like, yeah, right? It's like <laughs> Richard Blackmore calls him, you're kind of a jerk. It's like, do this what you did. Yeah. Right? No. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I, I wonder, because there is this sort of like, I went to rock and roll school, and this is what I learned. Yeah. And I, now I this is what I'm executing, because this is my vision, and if John Sykes can't get on board, then John Sykes can't get on board. God, man, what a great record, too. Hey, Darius, thanks for the letter. And it doesn't matter if you're not an Aquarius. We think you're great. And thanks for listening to the show. If you want to get involved in the show or you have a a hunt like this that you want to send us on, we're happy to to look into it for you. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can follow along with everything we're doing at instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Facebook, it's backslash story guy, the story guys. Uh, and Patreon. Patreon.com is where we are throwing up extra content, bonus content from wow. episodes. Uh, if you listen to the Badfinger episode, there were, there were an extra eight minutes that didn't make the cut that we put up, but we did throw it on Patreon. Do you know why? It, do, you know, do you know why we had extra time for that? Because it had nothing to do with what we were talking about. No, it's because we keep telling stories! Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.